The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. Man, thank you. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. I'm sad my wife missed it. She's in California right now. All right. Well, again, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Shady Grove. We're continuing our sermon series on 1 Corinthians this morning. So uh, if you have your Bibles with you, if you use apps on your phone, whatever it is, you can take those out and start opening up to chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. If you do not own a Bible, that's okay. There are Bibles in the seats in front of you. You can take one of those out and use that to follow along. And uh, that's our gift to you, and we hope that you will take it. Um, if the one in front of you isn't has seen better days, we have some out in our lobby as well at the welcome table. So please take one home and read it as our gift to you. Um, I'm fired up about our text this morning. I'm fired up. And so if, that, if I talk loudly, uh, forgive me. Um, but I, I'm fired up about our text in 1 Corinthians this morning. And uh, so just to kind of set the stage for where we are in our study, last week, Charlie pointed out to us that we are kind of in the middle of this unit that's running together across several chapters. And so he said, we're going kind of from the beginning of chapter 8 to the beginning of chapter 11. And Paul is dealing with the subjects of rights and freedoms and how true Christ-like love will lead us to forsake our rights and freedoms for the good of others. And the Corinthian church was really struggling with this. They had a huge problem with this because here's what they didn't understand. They didn't understand that, that being free in Christ does not mean that we are free to do whatever we want to do. Being free in Christ does not mean that I am free to hold on to my preferences and my rights and whatever it is that I want to do, no matter the cost to other people. Being free in Christ means I am free to be who God has made me to be. And that means I am freed for the service of God and the service of others. And the Corinthian church didn't get this. And so if you remember way back in chapter one, I told you all back in chapter one, this is going to come up again and again. If you remember back in chapter one, the overall problem that Paul is dealing with in this letter is division and disunity in the church. So can we get this verse up here on the screen? It says, verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1, Paul says, In the very beginning, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers." And one of the things we talked about in chapter one was how divisions in the church were not only harmful to the unity of the family of God, but they were obstacles to outsiders coming into the church and coming to faith. And so what was starting to happen across all these different groups, and we saw this earlier in chapter nine and in chapter eight, is these different groups were essentially saying to each other, this is just how our group does things. If you don't like it, you can find a different group. The Christians in Corinth were using their freedoms abusively, and it was tearing apart the unity of the church. And so now for the last chapter and a half or so, Paul has been urging the church to use their freedoms not just for themselves, but for the good of their brothers and sisters in the church. 
Well, now in our text this morning, Paul's going to take it even deeper because he's directing his audience, which includes us this morning sitting in this room, that we should use our freedom in Christ not only to serve those in the church, but also to serve those outside the church so that more and more people might come to faith in Jesus. So let's go ahead and turn our attention to the reading of God's word. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm starting in verse 19. The Apostle Paul writes this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in them, Share with them in its blessings. Let's pray together. Father, your word is a precious gift, and I pray that you would not allow me to squander it this morning, and that you would help our church to receive this text, to sit under it, and to see just how precious the blessings are that we have in the gospel, and that you would give us a passion and a desire and a motivation to share those blessings with other people. We thank you, Lord. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's a word that we use to describe what the Apostle Paul is talking about in these four verses, and that word is contextualization. I wish I could just abbreviate that, but it's contextualization. And I'll define what that means in a moment. So we're going to be talking about what that means for us as a church But rather than muddying the waters and getting into all kinds of details and specifics about what this might look like for our church, I don't think this is the right format for that, the right medium. Uh, Instead, I want to give our church a positive vision and motivation to have an ongoing conversation about contextualization as a church. Okay, and I want to do that by answering three questions from the text this morning. Very simple outline. Three questions. Number one, what is contextualization? Number two, how do we contextualize? And number three, why should we contextualize? So one, what is contextualization? Two, how do we contextualize? And three, why should we contextualize? So what is contextualization? There's two words that Paul repeats in this text. Did you catch them? In four verses, he uses the word when five times and all six times. So what do you think the point of this text is? When all. I've done my job. I'll sit down. You know the point of the text. When all. He's talking about soul winning. He wants to win people for Jesus. And someone told me this morning, you know, Ben, we, you talk about this kind of stuff a lot. We can tell you're passionate about it. And yeah, I'm passionate about it. 
The Lord saved me out of unbelief eight years ago. He forgave my sins. He brought me into the church. Yeah, I'm passionate about it. I want other people to have that passion and come to know the Lord. And I hope we don't lose that passion as a church. Paul says, I became like a Jew to win Jews. I became like a Gentile to win Gentiles. I became weak to win the weak. And then this somewhat famous and controversial verse, I have become all things to all people that I might win some. Paul is practicing what we today call contextualizing. So let's spend some time unpacking this. Dr. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, you hear him quoted here frequently. Uh, He's someone who has influenced me a lot in this area, and he gives us a pretty good definition for what contextualization is. So let's kind of break this down uh, with what he has to say. So here's his uh, kind of textbook definition of contextualization. He says this, contextualization is not, as is often argued, giving people what they want to hear. Rather, it is giving people the Bible's answers, which they may not at all want to hear, to questions about life and their particular time and place that they are asking, in language and forms they can comprehend, and through appeals and arguments with force they can feel, even if they reject them. It is giving people the Bible's answers to questions about life in a particular time and place that they're asking and language and forms that they can comprehend through appeals and arguments with force they can feel. Or perhaps to summarize that, it's bringing the Christian faith and all of the scriptures have to say to bear on someone's life in a particular context. Or if we can summarize it just a little bit more, it's real talk, okay? It's real talk. Uh, Porter, Charlie, and I, we went to the annual retreat for pastors in our denomination in this area uh, this last week. So we are up there um, in West Virginia, and uh, the guest speaker there was Dr. Carl Ellis, who some of you may remember came here earlier this year. Dr. Carl Ellis, I found out, I didn't know this, he is the, not the first African-American teaching elder in the PCA, but he's the longest tenured uh, African-American teaching elder in the PCA, uh, despite great sacrifice to himself and his family. And uh, so when he came to the church, you know, he talked about things like race and racism and social justice. And so he was talking about that again at the retreat. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you remember this when he's talking, but you always know when he's about to sort of get down to your level, right? Because he gets away from the podium and he says, listen, can we talk, right? Can we talk? And that's how you know you're about to get the real, the real thing from him, you know? You're about to get the real opinion. That's contextualization. It's real talk. It's, can we talk? Can we get down to earth on this? It's getting real with people. It's getting our heads out of the ethereal clouds and bringing our faith to bear on the needs, questions, and issues that people have from a particular cultural perspective. And contextualization can be a tricky concept for some people. And that's because what we have sadly seen, oftentimes even just in the last 30, 40 years, is that people use contextualization as an excuse to change the gospel message. It becomes an excuse to change the gospel message. So what some people have tried to say, they've used a text like this as their defense, they say what we need to do is change the message of Christianity so that we can win more people. And you take that idea 10 miles down the logical river, and where you end up is with a church that's embraced all the sins of the culture, and that's making no real impact on the culture. So, rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ transforming and bringing life to the culture, 
the gospel of Jesus Christ is transformed by the culture and death is brought to the church, right? That's not what Paul is saying in these verses, okay? Remember, contextualization is not saying what people want to hear. It's saying things in a way that people hear it. You understand the difference? Like when I was a kid and my dad comes to me, he wants me to do something. He says, Ben, go do this. Yeah, maybe I'll do it. Maybe I won't. But if I'm sitting, you know, watching cartoons in the living room and I hear my dad yell from the next room, Benjamin Robert, better get off my rump and get, get going. You know, my dad contextualized. He knew how to arrest my attention so that I would hear him and what he wanted to say. Paul is not telling us to change the message. Paul is telling us that we need to be willing to change so that others might be won to Jesus by his message. We don't change the, the message, we allow ourselves to be changed. We don't trim the message, we trim ourselves. We don't sacrifice the message, we sacrifice ourselves. And woe to the person who is not willing to sacrifice themselves, but instead sacrifices the message. Woe to that person. Biblical contextualization is getting down to earth with real people in a real cultural context by bringing Christianity to bear on their lives. So what are some examples of this? Well, contextualization can occur on a pretty small scale, and it can occur on a bigger scale. So, small example, how you might share the gospel with someone who has never stepped foot in a church will hopefully be different from someone who was raised in a church and was burned by it, right? I just hope that's some wisdom. You know, it might be a little different. Or perhaps the themes you draw out of scripture to communicate the gospel may vary person to person. If you're talking to someone from a cultural context that has a high value of family, you might draw out the family of God and our adoption as sons and daughters as you're sharing the gospel with them. You may choose to obey, obey certain cultural customs in order to have a conversation with someone from a different background. You go to the mosque, take off your shoes. You know, be respectful. But it can be bigger than that. The language we use on Sunday morning might need to be over-explained to those who have no clue what is happening here every week. And we're going to talk more about that in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians because this issue is going to come back again. Paul's very concerned that outsiders will be able to understand the worship service. So we'll talk about that in chapter 14. It might also mean that our ministry programs, our strategies, our emphases need to adapt to our context. Perhaps, for example, as people in our community become more and more skeptical about the church, might we need to go above and beyond in our ministry of care to earn their trust so that they will listen to what we have to say? Or how about this? An article recently came out. I'd encourage you all to read it and look it up after church this morning. It's called CrossFit is My Church. And it talked about how more and more people, especially younger folks, are finding their deep sense of belonging and community in places like gyms and yoga studios. And of the many reasons that were given in that article, it's because fitness centers are essentially replacing religious community by providing a place to be on mission, to have a sense of purpose, and a sense of belonging. And so to the extent that that is happening in our context, we should be evaluating ourselves and asking if we are providing a deeper and better sense of mission. 
After all, the scriptures have a lot to say about mission, doesn't it? Do people know that when we come into contact with them? Do they know that about us, that we are on mission and we have a great purpose? And still it can go even deeper. When you look at the ministry of Jesus and his crew in the New Testament, they would intentionally address the needs and the issues people had in their context. So contextualization also means that we deepen our understanding of other people's core issues, values, and concerns in order to address them and speak to them biblically. Dr. Ellis, again, I'm bringing him back up. He's been very helpful to me on this. And he talks about this concept of core concerns. Core concerns are life-controlling and life-defining issues and values that we have. So they might be something universal that all of us feel like loneliness or anxiety, depression. Maybe we worry about our families or our access to education. But there are some core concerns and issues that are related to particular cultural situations and they tend to relate to particular people. So, for example, in middle and upper class America, the opioid crisis, prescription drug abuse, medicating ourselves to sleep because we're overworked and all of that, that's a big cultural core concern for middle-class America. For another community or communities in our country, historical issues of slavery, segregation, oppression, and present issues, ongoing issues, are a cultural core concern. If you're a refugee in this country who came here five years ago and you've been waiting for your family to join you, and you see the numbers of people allowed into our country being cut and cut. What's a cultural core concern from you? Am I ever going to be united with my family? Right? That's a huge cultural core concern. And the point is this. Each of us are a complete mess. That's the point. We're all a complete mess. We've all got stuff. We're a mess. We're tore up. And here, though, is what can happen in the church we can grow reluctant in addressing the core concerns of a particular or different people group because we say we don't want to divide the body of Christ. And that's a good concern. You know, we want to be unified. And we worry that somehow if we address cultural core concerns, it's going to be divisive. But if you read the Gospels, if you read the book of Acts, You see Jesus, you see Paul, you see the apostles doing this all the time. They hit the issues head on. For Jesus, that meant he addressed issues of hunger, thirst, sickness, and exclusion from the religious community. For Paul, all the time in Acts, you see him hitting these things right in the head. Jews have this issue, Gentiles have this issue. In Acts 6, with the appointing of Greek deacons to take care of Greek widows, it didn't divide the body of Christ, it united the body of Christ. If we want to get people's attention, we must contextualize and address their core concerns. Ignoring cultural concerns does not bring unity to the body, in fact, the exact opposite. And think about it, when has brushing problems under the rug ever been helpful in any of our relationships? Right? How many of your marriages is it helpful to say, you know what, we're not, we're not going to address the conflict? 
We're just going to pretend it doesn't happen. That's not helpful at all, is it? Listen. Can we talk? Can we talk? We're a family, right? One of the things I've noticed that can so easily happen, and again, please don't read into what I'm saying. This is nothing, that's on a veiled comment. Just take it at face level. One of the things that I've noticed can, can happen is that we are simply unaware of how messed up everyone else is. So what is often, and again, not always, but I think often happening when I hear someone say, we don't want to talk about that issue because it's going to be divisive, I think the real problem is just a lack of awareness or indifference. Because if we knew how deep the hurt and pain that other people had is, we would know that addressing people's core concerns wouldn't be divisive, but it would be healing and restorative. You know, later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and again, we'll talk about this more when we get there, Paul uses the metaphor of a body to describe the church. And what are the two issues that Paul addresses in that chapter? I don't know if you all remember this. You have the dominant members of the body say to the less dominant members, I have no need of you. And so the less dominant members start to think, I guess I don't belong to the body. When we don't address everybody's issues, when we're not willing to address everyone's hurts and pains and contextualize the the Bible's message to our core concerns, that's what happens. We start to say to people, we have no need of you. And they start to think, okay, I guess I don't belong to the body. By all means, Paul says, by all means available to me that I might save some. We contextualize then, like Paul, for the sake of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ so that others might share in, with us in its blessings. So how do we contextualize? How do we contextualize? Well, a couple of years ago, um, I spent about six months volunteering weekly in the uh, children's cancer unit at Inova Fairfax. Okay? I was volunteering there every Friday. And one of the things I had to learn very quickly in my time there at the hospital was how to contextualize my service and my care. And the doctors and the nurses in this room, you know where I'm about to go with this probably. I had to learn how to read the room and to respond accordingly. I had to learn how to adapt my language, both audible and with my body. I had to learn how to change my mood and my emotions. I had to learn what activities or suggestions to give to people for their care. You know, if a child was on their third or their fourth treatment, if they'd gotten to know people in the hospital, if things were going well, they were doing pretty well, you know? And you could walk into a room and the room was up here and so you have to be up here, right? You spend 10 minutes with them. You walk next door into the next room and you find a child on their first treatment. They just found out they got cancer. It's not going well. They're not feeling well. And they're back in the corner by themselves. Room, lights are off. And they're, the room's down here. And you've got to go down here with them. Right? Doctors and nurses, you guys know this. Right? It's exhausting. I don't know how you all do it. I did it for four hours every Friday. And you do it for a living. Now, could I have just blitzed into every room and treated every child and family the same? Sure. Of course I could have. 
Would I have been effective in my ministry and care? Probably not. Could Paul have addressed the Jews like Gentiles and the Gentiles like Jews? Sure. Would he have been effective in his ministry? Probably not. Here's my point. If we want to be contextual people, we must be intentional about it. We have to be intentional about it. If we want to reach people in our area, if we want to address their core concerns, we have to be intentional about it. It is rarely the case today that people just drift in to a church building and suddenly come to faith. I mean, it happens. It happens. And God saves how he wants to save. But that's not the norm. I don't think it's the norm that we see in Scripture, particularly the New Testament either. When we want to see people drawn to Christ, it normally comes because they begin to see how Christianity addresses their felt needs, their longings, their unfulfilled desires. They begin to see how once my sins have been forgiven, I become a child of God by faith. Everything about my life and my sense of self changes. My dignity is renewed. I have a new and deeper sense of meaning and purpose. I belong in a new family and I'm cared for and I'm loved in a way that I could never imagine. That is how people are drawn to the faith. You know what's interesting about this text? There's... Some, some things stood out to me for the first time studying this text more in detail this week. You know, it's interesting, especially for those of us who we have this high view of God's sovereignty and salvation, you know? Look, I'm as, I'm as reformed and as Westminster Confession of Faith as they come, all right? So again, don't read into what I'm about to say. We absolutely believe that God is the one who does the saving, right? By his Holy Spirit, he redeems and he saves his people, Romans chapter 9, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Amen. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Amen. God does the saving. He draws dead men and women to himself. He gives them the gift of his Holy Spirit. He forgives them of their sin. He unites them to Jesus Christ and he protects and he keeps them all the way until they're one day with him in paradise. Amen. Look at the end of verse 22. I have become all things to all people that by all means God might know by all means, I might save some. Well, would you look at that? Paul, the great defender of God's sovereignty and salvation, says that he is going to do anything he can so that he might save some. Does God sovereignly save his people? Yes. Do we know who those people are? No. No. So does God use our intentional, purposeful actions in engaging non-believing image bearers to bring them into his kingdom? Yes. There's not a contradiction there. When you look at the Apostle Paul here as an example, and he says, to this group I became like them, and by this, to this group I became like them, when you see his ministry in Acts, you get this impression that he was incredibly intentional about every possible opportunity that he could get. 
He intentionally pursued people. He learned to become like them so that he might win them. So there's another lesson in here for us. Be intentional. But there's also this. Until we have real human interaction with people in a culture or a context different from our own, then all of our opinions about that culture, about that people, it's just speculation and it's not proper contextualization. Until we've actually engaged people who are different from us, from a different background, a different culture, until we've actually engaged them face to face, all of our opinions about that culture or about that group, it's just speculation, not contextualization. We have to actually come into contact with different kinds of people and engage them if we're ever going to faithfully bear witness to the gospel in our present age. If light is going to shine, it has to be in dark places. If salt is actually going to season food, it has to touch the food, right? Salt by itself is of no use except for making our blood pressure spike. Get what I'm saying? By and large, people are not going to seek us out. Charlie said to me this last week, we were talking about this, and he said, you know, the message of the Old Testament was come and see, and the message of the New Testament is go and tell. We must seek them out and tell them and engage them, and not just engage, but befriend, to really learn what makes people tick, earn the right to speak to their issues and their concerns. Many of you have heard me quote J.I. Packer, a theologian on this, who said that if we want the gift of evangelism, we ought to pray for the gift of friendship. I think we can take this and apply this to our text and say if we want the gift and the ability to contextualize, we ought to pray for the gift of friendship as well. Be intentional. Engage others. Another thing about this, be creative. I can't tell you how to do this, okay? I can't tell you how to do this. But it doesn't have to be extraordinary. It doesn't have to be extraordinary. You have a dog? Invite your neighbor with a dog to go on a dog walk with you. You got kids? Invite the neighbors next door to come with you to the playground. You know? Be the weird neighbor who actually talks to their neighbors. Halloween is coming up, right? Some of you have kids that come to your house. Make your house an awesome and memorable house to come to. Engage the parents when they're at your door. You don't have kids that come to your house? Find a church member in the here who does have kids who come to their house and make their house a memorable house to come to. Help them buy candy. Throw a party, man, with the neighbors. Do you live in an apartment complex? Buy king-size candy bars for your neighbors and tell them, we want to make this an awesome hallway for people to come to. And spend time with them. You know, be creative. Get an idea in your head, just do it. It might be silly, it might be awkward, but just do it. You know, I can't, I can't tell you how to do it. But be intentional, engage people, and be creative. Now, Why? Why should we do the work of contextualization? So follow along with me, if you will, on this train of thought as we answer this question, okay? Why? You know, one of the things that we see the New Testament speak a lot about is how the Christian is a servant or a bond servant or, depending on the translation, even a slave of Jesus. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, he identifies himself as a bond servant of Jesus Christ. James does the same thing in the beginning of his letter. He's a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Jesus in Matthew 6, when 
You know, he says, no one can follow two masters. What's he doing? He's identifying himself with a master to be followed and obeyed, right? And I think most of us are pretty comfortable with that language. You know, we say, yeah, Christ has saved me. My sins have been forgiven. I deserve eternal wrath and punishment. I've been set free. So I owe my life to Christ. I'm a, I'm a servant of Jesus. The New Testament takes this language even further because it exhorts us to be servants of one another in the church. And again, I think for most of us, we're okay with this language. Some of us have a hard time if we've been hurt by Christians in the past. You know, this is a little bit hard for us to love Christians again. But by and large, I think most of us understand this. You know, all the one another commands, Galatians 5, read from it this morning, serve one another in love. The Apostle John in his first letter declares that whoever says he's in light but hates his brother is still in darkness. And we say, yes, we're cool with that. And we understand because, you know, we're all a family and I'm supposed to serve just as Christ has served me. But I've noticed that this is kind of where things start to shift a little bit. And that we as Christians can begin to kind of draw this hard line between how we treat people in the church and how we treat people outside the church. As if it's somehow supposed to be extremely and extraordinarily different. Now, there are places in Scripture which make something of a distinction in our service and care. For others, Galatians 6 is perhaps the most well-known verse. So then, as we have every opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So is there a distinction between how we might love those in the church and outside the church? Sure. Maybe the degree to which we open ourselves up to others might change whether or not someone's in the church or outside the church. How much we invite the advice or the input of others might depend, you know, vary if they're a Christian or not. Perhaps even the priority, you know, if there's two people who are, need urgent care, sure, our priority might need to go to the person in the church. Other differences? Sure. But not in our willingness. Not in our eagerness. Not in our intentionality. Look at what Paul says in verse 19. I have made myself a servant to all. He does not say, I have made myself a servant to people in the church, nor does he qualify his statement by saying, I made myself a servant to all, especially to those in the church. He makes no distinction I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more. But why? Why should we make ourselves servants of all people? Why should we contextualize ourselves, sacrifice our preferences, sacrifice our customs, give up our freedoms in order to serve others? Friends, isn't that what Jesus did for us? Didn't Jesus serve us by contextualizing the eternal and unseen God to us? He takes on human flesh so that we can understand God through our sight. 
He communicates in human language so we can understand God in a way that we can read and in a way that we can hear. He addresses all of our personal, social, social, cultural core concerns so that we can understand God in a way that we can feel. And he takes on all of our sin in exchange for his grace so that we can understand God in a way that we can trust. Philippians 2, this beautiful passage we read this morning, says we ought to count others more significant than ourselves because Jesus emptied himself and took on the form of a servant so that we might be won back to God. And if this is your Jesus this morning, if this is your Savior this morning, then the more we trust in him, the more willing we're going to be to sacrifice ourselves and give up our rights, our freedoms, our preferences, so that by all means, we might save some. And where does that leave us, loved ones? My hope and my prayer is that we will not shrink back from conversations about how to bring the gospel to bear on our place and in our time here in Montgomery County. May God give us the wisdom, the love, and the courage to intentionally think through these things, to engage people who aren't like us in our context, and to be creative about it along the way. Let's pray together. Father, without your word, and without your Son, the word made flesh, None of us in this room would have seen you. None of us in this room would have understood you. We wouldn't have heard you. We wouldn't have believed in you. And you came to us and you gave up all your rights, all your freedoms, so that we might be saved. Oh God, would you give us a passion and a vision and a heart to bring your love, your mercy, and your saving grace to bear on the lives of people that we encounter every day. Help us, Lord, we pray with this. Help us, Lord, we pray, for we pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.